This is the Talk Editions podcast, episode 40, with Kurt Rohde and Marie Lorenz. I spoke with Kurt and Marie about their site-specific opera, Newtown Odyssey, which I was very lucky to play a part in, along with Laura, Talk's flutist. This is the second in a series of episodes about performing artists who engage with and respond to their physical environment. We're releasing this series alongside our year-end fundraiser, so if you like the podcast, if you believe in what Talk does, click on the fundraiser link in our show notes or head over to talkensemble.com and become an essential part of the process by helping us fund what we do. Kurt Rohde is a viola player, teacher, and composer who is searching for ways to incorporate varying notions of failure and catastrophe into the pursuit of making something beautiful. Kurt lives in San Francisco on unceded Rameta Sholone land with his husband, Tim, and dog, Hendrix. Kurt is artistic advisor with the Left Coast Chamber Ensemble, artistic director of the Composers Conference, teaches music composition at UC Davis, and has received the Rome Prize, Berlin Prize, fellowships from the Radcliffe Harvard Institute for Advanced Study and Guggenheim Foundation, and awards from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, Barlow, Fromm, Hansen, and Kusevitsky Foundations. New York-based artist Marie Lorenz has been exploring and documenting urban waterfronts for many years. In 2005, she began her Tide Taxi project, taking participants through New York City using only the tide in boats that she designs and builds. Her artwork has been exhibited nationally and internationally, from Artist Space and MoMA PS1 in New York City to Icon Gallery in Birmingham, England. She has been awarded many honors, including the Harpo Foundation Grant and the 2008 Joseph H. Hazen Rome Prize for the American Academy in Rome. Lawrence is represented by Jack Hanley Gallery in New York City. Here's the conversation between me, Charlotte, vocalist of talk, and Kurt and Marie. So, hi, Kurt and Marie. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. So, for the listeners, would you introduce yourselves? Yes, I'm Marie Lorenz. I'm a visual artist. Uh, I live in Brooklyn. And I'm Kurt Rohde. I live in San Francisco, and I'm a musician. And I'm Charlotte from Tuck. <laughs> we are here today to talk about Newtown Odyssey, um, which you two are two-thirds of the main creative team behind. I was really lucky to get to be involved in the process, in the creative process from close to the beginning. And it was like really cool to see that the project unfold. So just briefly to describe it for the listeners, Newtown Odyssey is an opera for, about, and on Newtown Creek, which is a creek that is part of the Hudson River estuary. So it's a mix of fresh and salt water and it ebbs and flows with the tides of the ocean. It flows through Brooklyn and Queens and empties into the East River. It's also one of the most polluted waterways in the United States. Um, actually, I'm not sure. Is that still true, would you say, or is that? You know, there. I was sort of looking it up recently because I feel like we, we often make that claim and it's a claim that's in the libretto. In fact, the libretto says the most polluted waterway in the United States. I think, the, does the libretto say United States or maybe even like the world or something? I think it says in America. In America. So the most polluted water in, in America is the Pacific Ocean. 
<laughs> and then and then comes the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> so right. and so if you think about it by volume, you know, there's so many ways that you can sort of like measure what the most polluted waterway is. And mm. so um, it, and I think the reason that the Newtown Creek ranks so highly in some of these like systems of scoring the most polluted waterway is because the ground around it is so polluted because of the Superfund, um, the, the Exxon Mobil oil spill. So if you sort of like factor in all of these things that the ground around it is very polluted, the actual bed is polluted, and the water itself is very polluted with contemporary sewage sources or super, or like pollution sources, um, it, it's it's a really polluted place. But then there, but then there's so many different like sort of like variables and factors that you could measure it by, you know, like the, the actual volume of the creek is just not that much. It's only six miles long. Yeah. So we performed it on this creek in September 2023. There were performers and audience members both on boats and on land. The libretto was written by Dana Spiota and her process included learning the creek's history, crawling through holes in fences, taking boat rides into active sewer outfalls, and walking along its banks. I'm guessing the those more direct experiences of the creek were maybe facilitated by Marie. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I definitely want to talk about the musical part of the opera, but maybe it would be interesting to first hear about, Marie, your relationship to the creek and to other bodies of water and how that works into your artistic practice because I, I it seems to me like that's maybe the seed of like the site-specific aspect of this project right yeah I um my visual art is all um centered around urban waterways and specifically New York City and so the Newtown Creek is um close to my house in Brooklyn and um I've always lived within like a few miles of it. And so it's the launching point for a lot of my projects. And I have a project that I've done for years in New York where I take people, um, I build boats and I take people on trips into the, um, into the Newtown Creek and all over New York City using the tide to propel the boat. And so it's called, it's a project called the Tide and Current Taxi. And people um, tell me where they, it was sort of like a taxi. People tell me where they want to go. And then I study tidal charts and I say when we should go based on how, what, how the tide is moving. And that project is ongoing. I started it in 2005 and I've done it every, I do it for a couple of weeks out of every summer. Um, sometimes it extends into the whole year, but, but I try to concentrate it to two weeks out of every summer. And um, it's taken me all over New York City. And, um, and I always take passengers that, um, yeah, I like to take people that know something or that have some specific connection to the water. Or I guess that varies. I have sort of a theme that I um, think up every year about what kinds of passengers I take or what kinds of like, I don't know, what we're looking for each year. And so, yeah, I've I've always just loved um, urban waterways. And um, I think that it's sort of an area where you can get a different, I don't know, it's like looking in kind of the behind the scenes of a city or kind of under underneath the set or something of a city. You can see how it all works and you can see the parts of the city. In a lot of cases, um, the parts of the city that aren't really meant to be looked at, but that operate so, so um, at such a 
crazy level about how the how the city functions, I guess, and or and and also how the city has developed in its history. And so the Newtown Creek is really um, special in that way. Um, when Kurt and I were first talking about the opera, about doing music on the Newtown Creek, we took a long walk around the creek. We meant to sort of see every part of it that you could see by land. And the unique thing about the Newtown Creek is that you can't see much of it from shore. There's not many places where you can walk right up to the water because there's these huge, um, like the Con Edison plant is on the Newtown Creek. So you can't get anywhere near the water where the Con Edison site is. And so there's a lot of things like that where like the creek is sort of, um, people are sort of prevented from getting near it. So that's why it's sort of an interesting, was an interesting site to us is because it's so, um, it has such a huge sort of place in the city's history and yet it's completely like invisible to most of the city. And so when we started talking about making music there, we were interested in that kind of like trying to kind of be in those spaces and see what it was like to actually like encounter them. And Kurt, you live in San Francisco now, but you grew up in New York, right? Yeah, I grew up in, in the city and then in the Hudson Valley up in Poughkeepsie which is when I was growing up, the Hudson River was not what it is now, let's just say. You know, you, you could not go into the Hudson River. And my father is a civil engineer and used to work. Um, this is back in the, you know, in the in the mid to late 70s and the early 80s. Remediation for the Hudson River back then was, you know, even more medieval than it is now. And they were just, it was just he would work on on these projects where they, you know, a lot of it was dredging and stuff on barges and just being taken out of the um, riverbed up there. And that entire, it's so funny because the um, Hudson River is strangely idealized now. The Hudson River Valley is strangely idealized now. But when I was growing up, it was, a, there just weren't as many people and it was a very different, it was just a very different sensibility and environment when I was growing up. Did you have any relationship with Newtown Creek before you sort of started this? No. And, you know, it's interesting because like many New Yorkers, <laughs> we we know about Guanas, but we don't know about Newtown. Yeah. It, I guess I knew there was water there, but I didn't know it had a name, which I think is really interesting I knew it was, I knew there was something there, but I didn't know what it was called. And it's so much more significant than, than, you know, Gowanus Canal, which is just a, you know, like the pinky on the hand. Mm -hmm. This is the yeah. whole hand by comparison or the arm even. Yeah, um, I think it is because it's in like Newtown Creek feels like it's in a more industrial sort of area and Gowanus is like, it's a little more residential, I think. Sure. Yeah. And also Gowanus like was really on fire when I was a kid. I mean, like there was oh. stuff, you know, it just had a lot of attention for a very long period of time because it was, you know, but that was back when Superfund was starting and also the type of environmental catastrophe was so, it was literally visible, you know, it was actively visible. And I think that Marie touches on a really important feature of Newtown, which is, access because accessibility is not just limited but it's it becomes a type of invisibility because it's so limited so the fact that i knew something was there but i also just didn't see it and therefore i didn't know anything about it i think that's really it's confusing <laughs> it's just confusing yeah 
Yeah, and that was a challenge even in the creation of the piece was sort of figuring out like how will we sort of get the audience there? Like how do we make enough room for people like on the bank? But that's also why it's so great that this opera happened because I think it made so many more people aware of the creek and and it is really fun. I remember I went out in the boat with Marie before I I had even seen any music for the piece, I think, and it does, I agree that it feels like going backstage or something behind mm-hmm. the scenes. You're kind of, it feels like, are we really actually supposed to be here? It's like a little secret, secret hideaway, like magical space. It's really cool. Yeah. I think that's an interesting statement. Are we even supposed to be here? Because you don't know about it or it is sort of strangely hidden and access is so limited or you're not told that you're you actually do have access to it it does sort of feel like oh i'm i'm not supposed to be be here um it's a really weird type of friction of like we're told don't do something because of all these certain conditions and that sort of taps into us like a type of socialization that well you know you can't since you can't get there you shouldn't be there yeah which is not true I remember the first, when I first moved to New York, I went in there thinking that I was not thinking that it was totally illegal because I thought it was totally illegal. <laughs> like, And th- looking back on it now, I'm like, it was so silly to like, a, like think that I was completely committing this crazy, like crime or something just by paddling up the Creek. <laughs> And then when people would sort of like walk up to the side, like what somebody, there was like a Con Edison, like, um, you know, employee or something walked up to the side of the bank and we were like, oh my God, they're going to send the helicopters after us. But now looking back, I'm like, he was probably just looking at, you know, whatever, walking over, looking at, looking at something at that point that was sort of unusual happening in the water. (laughs) And so then how did you two meet and how did this project sort of begin? Well, we met at the American Academy in Rome. We were both fellows there in 2008 and 9 along with Dana, the Dana Spiota who wrote the libretto. And we were had a really wonderful year of some some collaborations. Dana, wait, did Dana work on your opera the um Romulus and Remus opera? No. You know, I don't think so. No. no. I made a a I made the Tiber River for you your did. opera. You did. And so, and we, so we've all known each other for many years and um, maybe Kurt can explain how it started, how the opera, how the Newtown Odyssey opera started. Now we're going into our mythologies, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that Marie was posting some stuff online, which was a set of videos that were taken when you were inside your boat, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And it was on the creek. And there was something about those particular videos that I think I was coming, just coming off a production. Yeah, just finishing a previous operatic piece. And so I just had opera on the brain. I just, I don't know what, you know, and I just, I had a lot of complicated feelings about that particular piece that I was working on. And anyway, it, it that has nothing to do with this, the, this project. But then I saw these videos and I think I just, there was something about it that I, that I, I thought, was oddly more operatic or there was something about the thematic nature of the visual Mm -hmm. 
And it just sort of felt like that's so much more interesting as an operatic concept than what I just did. <laughs> what have was, you just done? Oh, I think it was oh, it was my Death in, with Interruptions project, which I'm really proud of. And I really had a great time doing. But it was just so beholden to so many things that I you know, at the time, I, I didn't really I couldn't figure out as I was working on it. But, you know, after the fact, I was like, God, I really as I was working on that project, I didn't realize how much I was really pushing against all so many strange conventions that are sort of attached to operatic work. And that particular project did not allow for me to really punch through or discard and explore other ways of what it means to create opera and enact so it. like what would have been a con like what would have been a convention that you felt like you were struggling with with that piece i think that 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 piece especially because it's that piece is based on a, on jose saramago novella which is which is the same same title death with interruptions mm -hmm. it's a great it's a great book but the problem with opera is that you're really beholden beholden to this frame that narrative has to fit it's become so prescribed, no matter how many times you try to push outside of the of, of the prescribed nature of the narrative, the genre itself sort of pushes you back into a form. So for instance, it has to take place in a certain type of space. And that space, whether you like it or not, dictates exactly what you can do, what is possible. You mean like a fictional, possible. a fictional space or like the space of the theater or the, 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 the space of the venue. opera house, the, the, the venue, yeah, yeah. the space. Right, right. Um, and it really, it really, you, without you even knowing it, you really have eliminated an entire range of choices or possibilities that are, they're just no longer on the table. And I know that might sound a little bit reductionist and a little bit sweeping, but it's in fact, I think for me, very, it was very true. And also I think there's, by virtue of that, of just those facts, all of a sudden you, I felt very um, beholden to certain ideas of dramatic narrative that are attached to what an opera is supposed to do when it's supposed to do it as well. And also as a little bit of the how. And there was a lot of, I just had a lot of tension in, in, in that regard. So that when it, when I think of what I saw those videos, I was just like, oh, this is sort of odd. This is just, this is, there's no real sound here. That's musical sound, whatever that really means. And yet it feels like it has more operatic potential. And so I think that was sort of like the beginning of it. That was very long. I'm sorry. I just, I just. No, I, and that's good. To, well, I wonder like now what you would think now knowing all the, um, I feel like this summer was sort of a, um, a crash course in the limitations of outdoor performances. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the, and we just came up against every single limitation you could possibly have with outdoor performances. Mm -hmm. So now weighing both of them, <laughs> do you, what do you think about that? Well, I think outdoor performance is not, I mean, it's just a little bit like talking about a pomegranate and I don't know, a boulder. I, I mean, the pomegranate mm -hmm. could be indoors and the boulder is outdoors. It's almost, they're both solid objects, but that's about it. You know, I just mm -hmm. don't feel like they're, outdoor performance is just a different thing. And while you might have a lot of the same mechanisms making the sound and producing the fiction, <laughs> the acted fiction out, you know, of of the story, in a different way, you don't realize how much is completely out of your control. Whereas in an opera house, 
there is this illusion of complete curatorial control. And it just feels like, ah, you can be the master of the space and place. Whereas outdoors, I hate to break the news to you, but we were not the masters of the place <laughs> of the space at all. We were no. barely holding on. We and it were was barely great. holding on, yeah. It was great, but I think it really generated a, t- a type of, um, of excitement and thrill and also intimacy that yeah. was not possible if it was in an opera house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that the feeling that you described, Marie, of like sneaking onto the creek and thinking you were doing something illegal and that kind of rush that you get from that, like that's a really special feeling. And I think I certainly as a musician, and I think Kurt too, like I like that feeling in music, feeling like, oh shit, we're doing something we're like not supposed <laughs> to be doing. <laughs> but when you're in an opera house, like, yeah, there are certain in some ways you have a lot of control, but there are a lot of rules that you're following and a lot of like people know what to expect. And in a in a way, like it's a very, very, very safe space. And, and not that safe spaces are bad, but it's like, even if you did the craziest thing in an opera house, it's still like in an opera house, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. Yeah, so... So there, the limitations of being outdoors were definitely <laughs> monumental, but they were at least they were different and surprising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think it was really great to work with Charlotte because you always, um, I would sort of see these situations and think like, oh my God, like that's going to be impossible. Like I remember when you scanned, when I, when we had to move at some point we had to move Charlotte and the whole final part of the opera, like 50 feet closer to where we had done it the year before. And, um, and I sort of looked at where Charlotte had to kind of scamper down the rocks. And I thought, Oh my God, this is in a cot. And, and we had just, Heather had just designed this flowing costume that had arms and like this drapes coming out from behind Charlotte. And I just thought, how is this ever going to work that Charlotte is going to in the midst of a performance with like, all, you know, like hundreds of people watching. And now you have to kind of scamper over these boulders in the slippery mud and get on like climb in the dark dark (laughs) with lights shining in your eyes and and scamper out on the end of this thing that's sort of floating. And I thought this is never going to work. And you just needed a minute to sit with it. And you you hung out alone by it for a while. And then you did it beautifully. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was fun. It was great. I really enjoyed being a presented with challenges like that (laughs) (laughs) and it made it yeah it made it so much cooler than if it had been in some like totally accessible like space made it more magical it might be interesting to talk about some of the things that you learned I guess more directed to Kurt about like what it does take to make an opera outdoors like how did your idea about what the music would be change as you had a better and better understanding of like what the setting was and stuff. Yeah. I mean, before I really even thought about what the music would be, I would go out with Marie to the site quite a few times just to hear the environment, what was going on in the environment at different times of the day and in different seasons, actually. There are times of the day out there where you would just hear the wildlife 
and there would be no industrial sound. And then there were times of the day where it was what a racket, you know, between being in the flight path for LaGuardia and the concrete factory and the sanitation department coming in. It was just like, and then like a tugboat would go by, although the, although the tugboats are were weirdly silent. Yeah, yeah. They're really quiet, which is one of those things where I'm like, oh my God, here it comes and nothing sounds. Nothing would happen, yeah. Except the waves, the waves. Right. And then just also having, one of the things that I really took away was the way that distance, sound in the distance and sound up close was operating. And even along the banks of the creek, how that changed so significantly. If you were to go along the path towards the end of the creek, where there would be um, these reeds growing and you'd be leaving your access to the road behind you and moving away from, basically away from the mouth of the creek. Even that small 50 foot, 100 foot path, going down that path, all of a sudden the way that distance works with sound was really startling to me. Um, Cause some sounds would all of a sudden become so close and other sounds would almost disappear entirely. Mm -hmm. And I think that that factored heavily into the idea for the piece where the sound and the music would move with the audience through as the, the the opera itself progressed so not only are you moving along the path as an audience member following the the um the narrative of the story but the sound itself is also moving and i was since we didn't have a lot of funds to make it all magically work with super technology we and we had to have stuff that was robust and durable outside you know it's different than if you're in a space that has you know Meyer sound system working um we just came up with really I think really effective methods of using really simple sound file playback with very open-ended levels of coordination with the actual sound on, on the singers so that the sound would move with you. It was coordinated. The only thing was that was really coordinated is that it would start at a certain time and it would end at whatever time, you know, in the fixed amount of time that it was playing. But it would always be moving from where you were forward, physically in front of you. And that became, I think that became like the single, that was like the thing I had to keep reminding myself, the sound is moving in front of you, forward. That became integral to how one scene moved into another scene. And I'm not talking about the aesthetics of the individual music, the, the music of the, of, the, of the different parts of the, of the opera, but I'm talking about just the actual movement of the sound. So like for the first scene, Charlotte, when you and Kyra are the tour guides, your music that's ending, as it's ending, there's another scene starting at the same time, but it's in the distance on a barge. It's like a crossfade. That's the easiest way I can explain it. But it's actually a little bit more than a crossfade if you think about it, because it's it's actual sound coming close to you as you are moving away, because you physically move away as they come close. And so does the sound. Yeah, it's true. So it's highly, it's very spatialized. It's almost like it's almost as if the audience is moving, even though they're not at that particular point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's just because I got so used to it. But by the time we actually did the full production, the, the electronic part of the opera felt so natural and it just felt like it really fit in that setting. 
I remember feeling curious about how that was going to work, like being outdoors and like in nature and having this electronic component. But I think because you knew the site so well and like incorporated sounds from the environment and did so many revisions of the electronics, like it just, it all blended so beautifully. And I guess we had a really great team also doing the, mm. helping with the, the sounds. Yeah, the, the team was amazing. And also the fact that all of the sounds, you know, most of the sounds were basically just of all the performers doing it. They, you know, you all just recorded stuff and then I just put it together so that it's true. <laughs> I wanted it. I mean, electronics are not my strength, but I was willing to try to do something as you know, do it as well as I could. But I wanted the electronics to be just different versions of you doing stuff at an earlier time it's sort of like you're it's almost like being accompanied by different versions of you yeah one thing that's come up in a couple of the other conversations i've had during this like sort of mini season of the podcast is the idea that making music with an environment or sort of a non-human focus helps to change our perspective and think about how other beings might listen or might experience sound. Do you guys feel like that happened at all for you in this project? Or if not sound, like just experience reality or storytelling narrative? Well, it was crazy to be at that site so, so many hours. You know, I had only ever, like when I'm out on the boat, sometimes I can be in an area for like, six hours or like usually launching then going around and coming back to the same area or something but I'm not usually in like an industrial area for like days on end day after day and like right at the water's edge for like day after day hours on end so it was like crazy to see realize how much how special that one little area actually is like I had just like in some ways it was just like we were using that area because it was like at the right end of the creek there was like the the right amount of non-attention to that area and it was like sort of like just where we could do the only other place we could do it um on the creek other than the um sewage room, uh park and it is a really special area there's all that because the creek gets wide right there and the bank is soft so there's like this like long sloping bank of um you know muck or whatever but there's a lot of and then there's like kind of the man-made riprap bank where there's all the rocks and muscle mussels living there and then there's the pier piling of the old you know like they say 300 year old pier or something that's sort of stuck in the mud right there um so it's an unusual it's an unusual topography for the creek usually it's just a it's just a vertical wall that goes right down into the water that that um that you know vertical man-made wall that goes right down into the water so this is like a different kind of space and it was crazy how much stuff lives over there and so when I started building the um when I started building the docks and sort of building the kind of the kind of like places where people were standing I would watch this um this comrade like diving right around he was always like around there kind of the same time of day and he was like diving and looking for stuff and then I these like kids would come down and fish and they would pull out like a bass like an 18 inch bass or like a two foot long eel they pulled out of the water one time so it was like this incredible amount of like living living things are around there 
And the dock that I built was actually like starting, they would fish off the dock because there were fish that were like living on what was nesting under the dock. And so it was actually like creating, I mean, I'm not saying that I like created tons of habitat and I'm good for the environment at all. It was made out of like the most wretched, like plastic materials, but it was just, it sort of brought forth things that had, things that had already kind of taken, um, you know, a home on the, on the pier pilings. But during the actual performance, there was this like school of fish that were like right around the, um, right around my boat when the, when the real performance was going on, when the actual, when there was like 200 people on the bank, all the pressures on. And there was this school of fish that was incredibly active, like right around the barge. And I was like, what are they doing? Like, don't they realize that everybody's looking at us, right? Like, this is crazy. And I must've been the only person that could see them because the angle that I was looking kind of like, I, I was sort of like trying to blend into the scenery and sort of, so I had fixed my gaze kind of downcast. And I was watching just like hundreds of fish, like this big, like swimming all around the boat. And I was like, what on earth are they? Don't they realize that this is like the, that so much attention is near them or whatever. And they're right there. But then of course, you know, I mean, because I'm like superstitious and love like magic and stuff. Like I was like, they're doing this because all of the attention is here right now. They're like, there's something about like just the energy that's like the entire focus is turning to this barge and they're sort of like, you know, I don't know, feeding off of that energy or something. So yes, I did think about that stuff, <laughs> but you know, kind of like take that question in a direction. Yeah. I, I definitely think they felt the energy. Yeah. They're yeah. like, Oh, something's happening. We need to come, Check we need it to come out. watch. We need to participate. Yeah. That was that was like one of the most magical performances I might have ever like been part of because of like all of these people came with their own canoes and their own boats and they just kind of like materialized on the creek. There were also boats that had been provided like big boats that we had provided for the audience. But but then you you guys said that anyone who comes in their own boats can watch it for free. And I was so surprised by how many people came in their own boats. And it was just, it was amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Kurt, did you have any, any other thoughts about that, about like how working on the Creek might've shifted your perspective? Yeah. I'm not sure it shifted, but I was definitely aware of sort of these odd, you know, just happenstance. I remember Marie, I remember when Marie told me about the whole thing with the fish, you know, I just assumed Fish know what they want. They, you know, it was it was not a threat to them. They were just there was something going on, and sure, they were they were interested. It, it makes perfect sense. And also the barge, because it was the barge that they were basically moving around. Right. That that barge was vibrating, yeah, intensely because of all the sound coming off it. So mm -hmm. I'm sure that that was incredibly interesting to them, in a yeah. way that some other vessel was was just not had not done before mm -hmm. um but i was always fascinated where like this happened in the dress and it also happened in one of the performance in, in the performance and i think it was actually at the end of the second scene before we were going over to the movie in both instances there would be some bird that would just be flying by and then just like let out a sound at it at the most opportune moment where it was like you know everything at the sound had somewhat subsided the music had somewhat calmed or dissipated or you know moving to the distance and then there it was you know 
a bird or two being like, ah, it's like, oh yeah, sure. Hey, how's it going? Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> right. And wasn't there something in the, in the, um, in the performance, the 2022 um, version that Charlotte was in where this like triangle of geese flew away when yep. the direction of the, of the motion was sort of going, like, I guess that would be North and then at the end, they all flew back. So it was almost like this like timed like procession yep. of this huge flock of, um, I think it was geese. Yeah. Maybe it was seagulls though. I think it was yeah. geese. But it's also a really active, doing it at sunset is always, like that's just a really active time for all the wildlife. That's like when everything kind of, when the, the, the sort of like that, that shifting from day to night is like when the bugs come out, the birds come out, the, everything's feeding, the fish are biting, like everything's sort of like, that's the transition where like all of this stuff is happening. That's cool. I don't think I noticed that about the the geese during the performance. Oh, really? There's really in all the if you look at the documentation, um, of, you can see them when you're when I'm when I am taking you in the boat, Charlotte, actually, there's this huge flock that's flying over us. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it's amazing. Marie, have you been to the creek since the. Since the performance? I have. It looks really beautiful right now. Just last weekend, actually, I, I spent a day there because I was taking, I finally moved the barge to its, what I think will be its permanent home, more toward the um, Greenpoint side of the creek. And um, the barge had been out there since then, kind of getting getting messed up in the with the tide. And it was kind of like hitting against the pier. And it was just sort of like a an, becoming an eyesore. <laughs> so we fi I finally fixed it. And then it, um, the North Brooklyn Community Boathouse moved it up the creek where they're going to use it. Um, but so I was out there for a day last weekend and it looks great. All the kind of landscape things, landscaping that we did to kind of cut back the knotweed that grows there, that flourishes there. Um, the knotweed is just like at a nice height and everything looks really beautiful. Everything has kind of, I feel like at the, the day of the actual performance, it looked a little bare because we had just cut away a lot of the, the knotweed basically. Um, so it looked trimmed. But now it's come in at this really beautiful level and the picnic tables are there and the docks are there. Now, now everything that's there will remain, you know, for until it, I don't know, till it disappears, but it looks really great. And the, and I watched a kid pull a fish off of the, they were sitting on like Kyra's lifeguard stand. I watched a kid fish a little baby bass from that platform. So the, it's, it's being used and the site looks really beautiful. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. And speaking of that site, you worked closely with the Newtown Creek Alliance, which is a community organization that's been working since 2002 to restore and revitalize Newtown Creek. Could you talk a little bit about like the process of developing that relationship and how it functioned kind of? Yeah, I've been working with them for years. The The director is a, a close friend. And we, I mean, we had been just sort of asking their advice from the very beginning of, of thinking about the opera. And when, when Dana came to kind of research the libretto, she met with them. I feel like they, they've always been like just from the very, the very get go, we, we met with Willis Elkins and we said, where should we do it? Like, and we were weighing the, um, we were weighing our options of doing it at Plank Road or doing it at um, the sewage treatment uh, sort of park. Um, and so we kind of talked about the pros and cons with Willis. And 
so we always knew that they would help or that they would sort of, you know, um, I don't know, advise. But then when we, um, when we started reading about the possibility of getting an NEA grant, we applied for the NEA through the Newtown Creek Alliance. And so they were also sort of the, the fiscal sponsor of part of the um, grant that we got. So that was another kind of level of collaboration with them. And then having part of the audience on, on the water, it was really important that we um, worked with them and kind of to make sure that that was all done kind of properly and safely and they are closely related to the North Brooklyn Community Boathouse. And I think having the Newtown Creek Alliance's partnership was um, influential in sort of having the cooperation of the new of the, the community boathouse. Um, so yeah, so it was it was really the, it was it was really a, um, a partnership that was from the you know from the very beginning and and is still, you know, they I, they they just came out the other day and took the dock away. So they're still helping. <laughs> and, and um, they, yeah, they've, it's been really great working with them. I think um, something that is, was a real learning experience for me was that working with a community organization, especially in this manner on this type of project, rather than with a performing arts organization or a presenter, there's something a little bit more, from my experience, a little bit more true about this experience, especially because Marie had this has this you know longstanding deep relationship with NCA and then the community boathouse as well. But also, it really made the project feel like it mattered. It mattered. <laughs> maybe <it> just <laughs> like maybe just that. Sometimes I feel. I mean, not that I have like this tremendous, you know, experience in his long history of of working with presenters or, you know, performing organizations. But sometimes I feel like when you make a work together, it matters for such a small and in a weird way, not very, it's not always true, but in a weird way, it doesn't feel like a very generous experience. And that's not true in many cases, of course. But I feel like there's something about working with these community and civic facing organizations where the level of connection really sort of seeps into the creative process. And it really feels much more generous. And it just felt a little bit, it felt a lot of it more, um, just more meaningful. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Yeah, I felt that too, totally. And it, it was cool, the different relationships, like even just with like during rehearsals, sometimes the fisher kids would like come by and be fishing on the other side of the creek or like yeah. some guys on jet skis came by one day and we had an interesting <laughs> conversation with them. And and yeah, the audience seemed like it was made up of a whole bunch of really different kinds of people, um, yeah. which is not something I always experience at like new music concerts. Mm -hmm. So the yeah. jet skis, that was hysterical. We are jet ski magnets. I don't understand. <laughs> I know that is, I have never seen a jet ski anywhere inside the Newtown Creek. And they came all the way up and yeah, and they talked, they they tried to talk to Charlotte and Kyra. <laughs> they tried to get you guys to sing something for them. Kyra was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think back to the Hudson River workshop with the jet oh skis. God, on the Hudson River. I mean, crazy. that was just so funny. I was like, 
in our my entire life i've had zero jet ski you know exposure or interaction and here we are and that day on the hudson it was so wavy already and murray had all these like glass objects on the boat and then then the jet skis were making wakes and it was that was a lot that was very intense it was scary. Intense. Yeah. And I was, and I was, you know, when I saw them out there for the, um, for that 2021 performance, I was like, oh my God, like they also had a huge stereo on the, I think it was there, like the boat that they were with had this like sort of pumping bass stereo. And I was like, these guys could ruin the performance. It like, without even thinking about it, they could ruin it. And then they did, you know, then they came and they talked to us and they sort of like asked questions and looked at the boat and stuff. And then they like zipped off and went back to New Jersey or they, they actually went up river and then they came back at the, remember they came back at the very, very end. They like, you could see their, um, you could see that their procession sort of right as the final, like, you know, music was kind of quieting down. You could see them like zipping by in the background, but they, but yeah, that was, that was like a nail biter. I, I really thought that they would come back like during the thing and just kind of like, just because like, you know, it's like, there's an audience gathered. They want to be where that is, you know, <laughs> like the fish kind of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe as a sort of wrapping up topic of conversation like do you all have any advice for people who are maybe kind of interested in making performing art that is partnering with a more like civic organization or making something site-specific and outdoors yeah warnings um <laughs> encouragements <laughs> i think it really helped that we did it three years in a row and it grew year by year. I think like, and it, and maybe, maybe we, sh maybe there could have even been more <laughs> of that, but I think it was really um, important that we did, that we like had a little, Kurt was referring to them as modules. It was helpful to do little increments of it and slowly kind of increase the level of production and, and, um, and amount of kind of equipment that was brought to bear on each situation and the audience size, like it was, it was really important to sort of build, um, from our experience. I think that if we hadn't have, if we, if we, yeah, the 2022 version on site, I think was very informative about what the 2023 version looked like. I think so that's time. what, yeah, that would be my advice is like to, to kind of like, somehow work into the um into the concept the idea that you're sort of having you know at some point we we're calling them workshops or modules or something but we were basically like redoing the performance with an ever increasing kind of stakes and i think that that was a really good um a good way to do it yeah i agree the more time the better but time but a time frame with an end point in mind is always helpful because otherwise it will never, it's like, it'll go on forever, which yeah. can be great in its own way. <laughs> but that's, you know, maybe that's a different type of undertaking. I also think something that was, you know, and I'm, I've talked to Marie about this quite a bit, and it's just sort of like a life project for me. It's like, you really have to cultivate your own, I don't want to say expectations. It's more like your own sense of, of patience. Like what, is your capacity for being patient, patient enough to just give space to what the project needs in order for it to 
go in the direction that it needs to go and not in the direction you're sort of feeling it has to go in order for it to be completed because of all these external factors, you know, like the deadline for the grant or the reporting and blah, 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 all these things that I, you know, I think that those are real um, pressures. They might seem like artificial, but they actually come to bear in very real, real ways in when it comes to production of a live performance of a piece. And maybe that's another one of the ways that like working with New John Creek Alliance was so liberating, also just so fresh because they didn't have a deadline right. at all. Any deadline was going to be completely based on our own set of, you know, what we, when and where we, we could do it. Right. Which would have been very different if it were a presenter. They would have uh, wanted a deadline. They would have said, okay, this is going to be the end of the spring of this season. And that's the way it's going to be. And you have to, and that can be, like I said, those types of things work well and they can be very beneficial. But I think there's just something about understanding your own sense of patience. And, you know, that really can impact so many different factors and features of how you make work, how you work with others, your different levels of flexibility, also just being open enough to realize that some things some you're never going to know exactly why something does or doesn't work which i think is something that i am always really feeling very like i want to know why something works or doesn't work so that you know it's like it becomes like data it's like well if it does you do it this way you can sort of replicate it right and that's not it just doesn't really work that way and i think that this these types of long-term projects really make at least for me they made it very clear that like performing in the outdoors where there really is no control in a lot of ways i have far less control about understanding why something does or doesn't work than i realize yeah. and i think there's nothing wrong with just embracing that can you give an example of something that worked and you weren't sure why sure actually i think that i think that actually your the final of the creek being aria i'm not really sure why that should have worked in, in a lot of ways i think a lot of it had to do with where it was in the piece i think even more of it had to do with that it was not that it was outdoors although we did do a performance in in the gallery and it was just as effective and meaningful i think it also because you had so much input in the initial creation of that piece charlotte with all this yeah. all, all the recordings and then actually you gave me feedback about what you thought i could change and work and it was mostly information that i you know certainly i would not have come up with myself but there was also something else about the fact that the song the scene and the song became much more about you as that thing than it was about any type of musical consideration so it's sort of like it just it just I did I wasn't thinking of like okay now I have to repeat this or you know it wasn't like a formal thing it was a completely it was a completely just experiential thing. Mm, okay, that's cool. <laughs> do 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 either of you have anything like going on right now or coming up soon that you would like people to know about? I, uh, I'm running a string quartet. When yeah. I say that, it sounds so ridiculous because it's like, 
uh, an outdoor opera than a string quartet. I'm very happy with this this project I'm working on. This is a string quartet that's using um, material from the Sacred Harp songbook. Nice. As yeah, that's what it's sort of is all coming from. It's a it's a very different type of project. Beautiful. You're balancing it out. You're balancing out the effort with That's something right. more uh, familiar. And also really simple, like really simple. I have a show opening tonight, actually. Oh. <laughs> or I'm in a show. I'm in a show at the New Britain um, Museum of American Art tonight. That's uh, I'm not going to it. It's it's in it's a couple of hours away in Connecticut, but it's a show that I um that is traveling from the Thomas Cole historic or the Thomas Cole House historic site that I made a piece for um earlier. I guess I made it before the opera. When did I install that? And then um and then now I just reinstalled it in this museum in Connecticut, and so that opens tonight. And then I have uh, some stuff. I have a show in France that in um, in the fall of 2024, and then a show at Jack Hanley Gallery in the later in the fall in 2024. So some big things kind of like brewing, but nothing like that. Nothing that I can tell you like you know when the date is up yet. It's all it's all sort of just like in the planning stages. Okay. Well, we have any visitor listeners in Connecticut? Yeah, New Britain Museum of American Art is the name of the museum. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Thank you both so much for talking to me. This was so interesting. And I think a lot of people will really enjoy hearing about the whole adventure that you went on with this piece. Thank you for your questions. I love the question about the non-human yeah. listeners for the opera. There's more experiences than our experiences, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to be reminded of that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Charlotte. Yeah. It's great to see you. You have a great day. You too. Bye. Thank you, Charlotte. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been episode 40 of the Talk Editions podcast with Kurt Rohde and Marie Lorenz. To learn more about their work, click the links in our show notes. Also in our show notes is the link to support Talk's upcoming season. Check out our donor perks, including an exclusive sonic meditation created by Michelle Liu based on her recent work for Talk in a Forest, a tutorial by me entitled How to Turn Any Commute into a Magical Forest Journey, Talk t-shirts and hats, instructive videos by Laura Cox on birding and Eric Wobbles on foraging, original artwork by the brilliant Beatrice Modisette, and more. You can donate at talkensemble.com or via the link in our show notes. The music in this episode is excerpted from Newtown Odyssey, composed by Kurt Rohde. This episode was produced and edited by Charlotte Mundy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>